that. I'll sit down and shut up like Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> you tell him, lady. You tell him. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950. We're also heard coast to coast and around the world streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, declares I, from Bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today for another thrilling, action-packed adventure that we call the Brad Blog. Our friend Shannon Moore up in Alaska recently tweeted, I think this Trump regime is a lot like climate change. Lots of us warned about it. It's happening fast and way worse than anyone thought. Well, I don't know if it's uh, way worse than anyone thought. Uh, I think it's just about as bad as uh, as I thought, at least. Um, but today we've got some good news. Today we've got some encouraging news. Um, but first, this on the on the heels of the wave of threats being uh, levied now against uh, Jewish community centers around the country and the desecration of some 200 graves at a Jewish cemetery in St. Louis, Missouri, over the weekend. We get this news today that the New York headquarters of the Anti-Defamation League has received a bomb threat today. The ADL, um, the CEO of the ADL put out uh, the word. They said that uh, the ADL, which is headquartered in Manhattan, got a bomb threat this morning, very similar to the bomb threats that have come in to some 70-some-odd Jewish community centers in 27 states over the past two months. That, according to CEO Jonathan Greenblatt, um, he said it's a frightening moment, and it reminds us that the haters and the bigots, they hide in the shadows like cowards, and they seek to terrorize us because of our faith, and we will not be deterred, and we will not be daunted. New York Police Department uh, confirmed, in fact, an unidentified caller had contacted the Anti-Defamation League shortly after 11 a.m. and said there was a bomb in the building. So far, that has not come to be true, but it has, in fact, terrorized a lot of people. On the other hand, we covered that uh, story yesterday of those uh, those bomb threats across the country. 
And uh, yesterday's broadcast was necessarily quite dark, frankly, with that news. Uh, and uh, the uh, the issuance of Donald Trump's new mass deportation guidelines. So that was quite dark. But on the other hand, today we've actually got quite a bit of good and encouraging news on today's show. You may be relieved to hear that. I don't. Are you relieved? Oh, I'm Desi totally Doyen? relieved to hear that. I like good news. Uh, we've got uh, both people and courts continuing to step up to fight the good fight in the face of what at times. Uh, for many of us, uh, may seem like insurmountably terrible news, terrible times, wave after wave of disturbing news. Uh, but with both protests in the streets continuing against the uh, the Trump administration and now at town hall meetings for Congress members all over the country, folks have been stepping up, have, have continued to step up, have refused to be cowed. One such place, uh, one such case took place in uh, in response to that Jewish cemetery desecration yesterday in uh, in St. Louis in University City, Missouri. Uh, I noted, by the way, uh, on the show yesterday, I'm from St. Louis. I have family members who are buried in that uh, cemetery. I uh, and I heard from a lot of you about that. I greatly appreciate uh, your thoughts. Uh, I have heard today from. Uh, my family uh, who went to the cemetery to find out that none, uh, in fact, none of the headstones of my family, at least that we know of, have been disturbed. So there's that good news on a personal level. But on a on a, on a much broader uh, and important level here, uh, I don't know if you've seen this story yet. Um, Muslims unite uh, in response to this um, put out a, a notice that they were accepting donations to uh, launchgood.com slash cemetery in order to raise money uh, to help repair the anti-Semitic vandalism at the uh, historic Jewish cemetery founded back in the 1890s. And uh, they put out this notice. It was a, a group of uh, Muslims, outspoken uh, Muslims, who uh, said, you know what, we are all in this mess together. And uh, they announced just three hours. They had hoped to raise $20,000 by uh, late March. And in fact, in three hours, they met that goal. They wrote on the heels of bomb threats and hate crimes against dozens of Jewish community centers across the United States. A historical Jewish cemetery was vandalized this past weekend. Uh, over 100 headstones were damaged. Muslim Americans stand in solidarity with the Jewish American community to condemn this horrific act of desecration against the Chesed Shel Emeth Cemetery. We also extend our deepest condolences to all of those who have been affected and to the Jewish community at large. So they met their goal within three hours, and I just checked before airtime today. They met their goal of $20,000 within three hours. Now they are up to almost $92,000 that they have raised um, to help repair the cemetery in St. Louis. They say campaign proceeds will go to uh, directly to Chesed Shell Emeth. Uh, any remaining funds after the cemetery is restored, will be allocated to repair any other vandalized Jewish centers. So there's some good news. There's a, a nice story of the people stepping up. And while we're covering some encouraging news today on the broadcast for a change, two federal courts uh, have provided us with a bit more of that today, an encouraging ruling from a full federal appeals court and even some good news out of the U.S. Supreme Court, believe it or not, 
that one concerning race and the death penalty. But let's start on this federal appeals court ruling, which came in late yesterday at the very end of the show, because I think I think it could be a very important one. AP reports uh, Maryland's ban on 45 kinds of assault weapons and its 10 round limit on gun magazines was upheld late yesterday by a federal appeals court in a decision that met with a strongly worded dissent in a 10 to 4 ruling. The the uh, fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Richmond, Virginia, said the the guns that were banned under Maryland's law are not protected by the Second Amendment. Put simply, we have no power to extend Second Amendment protections to weapons of war, Judge Robert King wrote for the court majority, adding that the Supreme Court's decision in the uh, District of Columbia versus Heller case explicitly excluded such coverage. Maryland Attorney General Brian Frosch, who led the push for the law in 2013 as a state senator, said it is unthinkable that these weapons of war, weapons that cause the carnage in Newtown and in other communities across the country, would be protected by the Second Amendment. Judge William Traxler issued uh, the dissent for the court by concluding the Second Amendment doesn't even apply. Traxler wrote the majority has gone to greater lengths than any other court to eviscerate the constitutionally guaranteed right to keep and bear arms. He said for a law abiding citizen who, for whatever reason, chooses to protect his home with a semi-automatic rifle instead of a semi-automatic handgun, Maryland's law clearly imposes a significant burden on the exercise of the right to arm oneself at home. National Rifle Association spokeswoman, of course, Jennifer Baker, said it is absurd to hold that the most popular rifle in America is not a protected arm under the Second Amendment. So is it absurd, as the NRA claims, and is it in any event an important and encouraging ruling, as at least it seems to me? Joining us to answer some of those questions and more is Mark Joseph Stern of Slate, who described the ruling yesterday, in any event, as a remarkable victory for gun safety advocates and a serious setback for gun proponents. Mark is an attorney who covers legal matters and LGBTQ issues, uh, also a legal uh, matter quite a bit of late, it seems, over at Slate.com. Mark Stern, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Uh, appreciate you joining us here today. Uh, it, it's a, a busy day, not just this case, but also the Supreme Court case that I hope to get to in a bit uh, concerning the death penalty. But this law in uh, Maryland, uh, it was passed by the Maryland legislature. It was one of the few to be passed actually in response to the mass shooting at the Sandy Hook Elementary School uh, in Newtown, Connecticut, where some 20 children and six adults were mowed down with the type of weapon, or at least one of them, that uh, that Maryland decided to ban here? Yes, that's right. And I think it's actually quite noteworthy um, that the majority decision in, in yesterday's opinion opens with a, a recounting of the massacre at Newtown, uh, almost as if to set the scene for the decision that follows and to explain what motivated Maryland legislators 
to go ahead and forbid these weapons, uh, what the decision calls weapons of war, from being sold or possessed or transferred in the state of Maryland. Uh, it was very clearly a response to the Newtown Massacre. Maryland, like Connecticut, moved very quickly to take these kinds of guns off the market. Um, and it did so with uh, what I thought at the time was a very clear a precise bill that went ahead and said, we as a state have decided we will not tolerate these kinds of weapons. They have no place on our streets, and they should not be within our state borders. Now, uh, the ruling here, before we get into the the, the the merits and the content, the ruling itself has been a, a bit of a roller coaster since the law was originally passed. Uh, Mark, can you give us a sort of a quick history of that, since I suspect that uh, this may well go to the Supreme Court and depending on the makeup of the court by then, this ruling could uh, flip back once again in the other direction. Uh, yes. Yeah, so a district court judge upheld the, American, the uh, Maryland law in its entirety. Um, but a panel of judges for the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals then reversed the district court's determination and held by a two-to-one vote uh, that this law indeed violated the Second Amendment and had to be struck down. Um, at that point, the full set of judges on the Fourth Circuit vacated that panel decision. This is a sort of rare maneuver called en banc, mm -hmm. uh, and decided to rehear the case on bonk with all of the judges sitting in, uh, and that is what led to yesterday's decision uh, that over sort of overruled the previous panel decision and uh, reset the case and said, no, 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 we agree with the district court, uh, ignore what the panel said. The entire Fourth Circuit believes this law is constitutional. So the entire Fourth Circuit court, that's that's important if this goes to the Supreme Court, but did the uh, did that Fourth Circuit actually approve it? Or did they order a new hearing, a new trial in the case from the lower court, as, as you understand this? Um, so my understanding is, and I should say when I say the whole Fourth Circuit, there was, of course, a majority and a dissent, but, you know, mm -hmm. a majority of a court makes a court. So we have a majority of Fourth Circuit judges here on the record saying it's constitutional. And, and, um, and all of the judges on the court actually heard this, r rang in here one way or another, correct? Yeah, that's right. That's right. It was a okay. very a uh, lot of opinions in this case, a lot of need to go through. Um, and my understanding is that unless um, the opponents of this law appeal to the Supreme Court, which I think they probably will, this is pretty much the end of the line for this litigation. Um, if it is sent back down to the district court, I think it will just be for tidying up and dismissing the case formally. Mm -hmm. uh, there's not much to be done at the district court level. Um, and so this is really, this is sort of the final round here. The big question is what happens next? Mm -hmm. uh, is there an appeal to the Supreme Court? And if there is, what do the justices do? Are there four votes to take this case? and finally settle the matter of whether the Second Amendment protects these wild uh, weapons of war, uh, or will the justices do what they've been doing for years and years and simply refuse to hear any case that involves the uh, expanse of the Second Amendment, specifically with relation to assault weapons? And it was, so this would only take four, uh, four justices at the Supreme Court to accept the case, to hear this case? Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, that's the rule. So it requires four justices to hear any given case, to grant certiorari, as it's called. Um, so that's one of the reasons why uh, sometimes 
you get these cases where you think, why the hell did the Supreme Court take this case? The reason is that the four justices who wound up in dissent wanted to force the other justices to get on the record. Uh, and, and it's very possible that that could happen here. For instance, if Neil Gorsuch is confirmed and he holds extreme views on the Second Amendment, uh, he and the other three conservatives, Roberts, Alito, and Thomas, might vote to take this case. Uh, and then Kennedy and the liberals might vote to uphold the Fourth Circuit decision. There's all kinds of sort of behind-the-scenes plotting and politics that go into these things. Well, and that's why the makeup of the Supreme Court here is so important. Uh, if they were to take this case now before a Gorsuch uh, or other uh, Trump nominee could be uh, could be confirmed. And by the way, I'm on the record that uh, that's a stolen Supreme Court seat and the uh, Democrats should do absolutely everything they can to keep anybody other than uh, Obama's original nominee, Merrick Garland. And I don't know how he would roll on this, by the way, if if he were, uh, you know, nominated somehow. But until there's a that that ninth vote, this court is split uh, essentially for four if the case as it is now, uh, as it was decided by the Fourth Circuit Court, if that goes to the Supreme Court, then this ruling would stand, correct, from the Fourth Circuit if there was a tie? Yes, that's right. If there's a tie of the Supreme Court, then the previous decision stands and no precedent is set. Um, but I should say that I actually suspect this would not be a 4-4 split, um, and I'll tell you why. Yeah. In the Heller decision uh, back in 2008, there is very strange language in Justice Scalia's opinion that deviates from his extreme pro-gun tone throughout the rest of the opinion and says our decision should not be taken to mean that the government cannot regulate and ban weapons like, for instance, AR-15s, which just happens to be one of the weapons that Maryland has now banned. Mm -hmm. um, it is widely suspected that Justice Anthony Kennedy required and maybe even wrote that language before joining the decision. Uh, it goes on to reaffirm that states can ban weapons that are dangerous and unusual. So unusually dangerous weapons under Heller can also be banned. Um, and so if it's true, as most people suspect that Justice Kennedy required that language to, to add his vote to Heller and create mm -hmm. a majority of five, then I don't really see him cutting back on the Fourth Circuit's ruling. I think he would probably agree that states are democratically enabled to ban these weapons if their citizens choose to, and that it's not really the place of the courts to force all of us to live in a state where you can do nothing at all about anyone getting an AR-15 or an AK-47, and if they so choose, opening fire in a public place. So to be clear, that decision written by Antonin Scalia may be uh, helped along by Kennedy, we don't know, but that decision, uh, that key decision, D.C. Uh, versus Heller, uh, which which found a, a a personal right to at least keep handguns in the home. That same finding by Scalia said uh, that uh, courts or, or legislatures could still ban these dangerous weapons, which Maryland now refers to as weapons of war in this case. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, there's actually a lot of evidence that Scalia grew to regret that passage um, <laughs> recently, shortly before he died. He wrote a strange little opinion, uh, or joined a strange opinion uh, written by Clarence Thomas, suggesting that a city could not ban assault weapons because so many people have them that they're no longer unusual, that they're not unusually dangerous. 
Mm. Because once enough people own a certain type of gun, the Second Amendment magically begins to protect it. Uh, But that only drew two votes, Thomas and Scalia. Um, And so I think that there's not a lot of appetite on the court to push back on that little provision of Heller that says unusually dangerous weapons still get to be regulated and banned. Uh, you note that uh, one of the banned guns uh, from the uh, Maryland uh, uh, law here can empty a 30-round magazine in two seconds. Another includes a grenade launcher. Uh, so if we're talking about whether these are unusual weapons or not, uh, I guess you could say, well, they're they're popular, so they're not unusual. But uh, a gun that can empty 30 rounds in two seconds? Is there any such weapon? Uh, that these groups uh, like the NRA and so forth think should be uh, banned for sale? Any Anything? Fully automatic weapons? Rocket launchers? Uh, do they have a record of uh, at least the modern-day NRA being willing to, uh, you know, to, to, to put limits on any, any type of weapons, to your knowledge, Mark? Uh, no, no, not at all. Um, and the reason is that, you know, the NRA survives and thrives on, of course, money from the gun lobby, um, you know, gun manufacturers, the gun industry, uh, which itself makes money only so long as there is a thriving market for guns, new guns, improved guns. Uh, and so the ratchet here is pretty simple. You have enough states like Texas uh, and West Virginia, places like that, where there's essentially no gun regulation. If the NRA can introduce enough of a certain type of weapon in those states, then it gets to go to court and make an argument, hey, guess what? 500,000 Americans have a bazooka launcher. That means it's not unusual anymore, and there's no state gets to ban it at all. Um, and so it's just not really in the NRA's interest to ever take the stance that a certain kind of weapon should or could even be banned, uh, because that takes it off the market in the future, and the NRA needs that market to keep churning. Otherwise, they won't have enough money to keep buying politicians. Sean Spicer, the uh, White House press secretary, said, I think this was yesterday, uh, concerning uh, this uh, federal guidance uh, that's being issued by the White House concerning transgender bathrooms. Uh, He said, "Uh, I think that all you have to do is look at what the president's view has been for a long time, that this is not something the federal government should be involved in. This is a state's rights issue. Now, that was on uh, bathroom use for uh, for transgender people. So, um, Mark Stern, what of the state's rights that Republicans uh, always enjoy pretending that they give a damn about? Isn't this such a case where the people of Maryland have decided for themselves through their duly elected representatives what type of weapons that they want and uh, and don't want uh, to be made available isn't that a states rights issue uh, or at least you know what what happens to that argument uh, when it comes to things like guns it seems it's very selectively applied by uh, by these republicans sometimes well, I think that the Republican line on states' rights has always been sort of states' rights for me, but not for thee. And if you go back to the Bush administration, you saw all of this support for states' rights uh, in, in all these areas, except for marriage equality, when the Bush administration wanted to pass a constitutional amendment prohibiting states from passing marriage equality. Not just the federal government, but states themselves. Right. Uh, I think you see a similar situation here. You know, 
Trump says he supports states' rights. He certainly does when it gets him out of dealing with trans issues or allows him to actually hurt trans children. Um, but when it comes to something like guns, come on, you get to do whatever you want when you're president. You get to tell whatever line you want, and he wants guns everywhere, and so do his donors. So frankly, I just don't think it's worth taking politicians seriously when they talk about states' rights, especially not Republican politicians, uh, because they just are not consistent in any capacity. They only trot out this argument when they don't want the federal government to get involved in something, and then when it's convenient for them, they flip it around and decide, guess what, Maryland has no right to democratically choose to ban certain weapons. Which is what happened here. They they democratically chose it. Their Congress uh, or their their state legislature and and their governor uh, signed this, passed this law. One of the in the uh, the majority in this decision, uh, there was a couple of key points that I want to hit before uh, we get to a break here, and we'll we'll come back on the other side and talk about the Supreme Court case, which is also good news. That uh, they wrote that even if the Second Amendment applied here, the Maryland law would still be constitutional because uh, the law in this case does not effectively disarm individuals or substantially affect their ability to defend themselves. In other words, if I'm understanding this, Mark, uh, that seems key. Is the court saying here, if I understand them, that essentially the Second Amendment allows the right to bear arms, but it doesn't guarantee that right to bear every type of arm that man has ever invented? So yeah, would, is, yeah. that, is that your reading as well? That's about right. It's a, it's a, it's a good way of phrasing it. Uh, the court really sort of issued two different holdings. The first was we don't think that the Second Amendment applies at all. We think that it's just not implicated here, because these aren't the kinds of guns that the Second Amendment is designed to protect. Um, the backup argument, uh, the sort of alternate holding, is the one you just described. They said even if the Second Amendment does apply, then this law survives constitutional scrutiny. And like you said, the reason is that it just doesn't cut to the core of what the Second Amendment, as Heller reads it, is supposed to protect. Heller says the Second Amendment is about being able to arm yourself to defend your home and your family. That's the extent of what Heller says. And here, these guns are not necessary for defending your home and your family. These guns are necessary if you want to kill a lot of people in a very small amount of time. Uh, and so what the court said was, look, we're going to analyze this under the Second Amendment, but we're going to keep our eyes open to the fact that it's still very far from the core right that the Second Amendment was designed to protect. And so even if we assume that the Second Amendment applies somehow here, we think that this passes constitutional scrutiny because it's not cutting into that core Heller holding involving self-defense. Uh, one last point here before we get to our break, um, uh, because this, I think, is is really important. And this kind of seems like the nut of the, the entire gun argument at this point. Uh, Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson, who is a Reagan appointee, uh, he wrote uh, separately, he was with the majority, and he wrote uh, his own uh, uh, separate argument here to express his discomfort with the gun lobby's strategy of using the courts to increase access to dangerous firearms. Let me just read, uh, you quoted this in your piece at Slate.com, uh, Mark. Um, I want to read this. He says, as Heller recognized, there is a balance to be struck here. While courts exist to protect individual rights, we are not instruments of anyone's political agenda. We are not empowered to court mass consequences we cannot predict. 
and we are not impaneled to add indefinitely to the growing list of subjects on which the states of our union and the citizens of our country no longer have any meaningful say. Uh, he basically goes on to say that uh, the the notion that the courts and the um, and the people through their representatives can have no say over anything because, hey, it's in the Constitution. We can't touch anything here. Don't even look at it. Uh, that that notion is become of, of, of things that are being argued that way is becoming longer and longer. And uh, frankly, becoming absurd. That from a Reagan appointee. Yeah, but you know, it's important to remember that Wilkinson is a conservative, and that means he believes in judicial restraint. He does not want the courts and judges, which are unelected in the federal branch uh, and really unaccountable, uh, to reach far beyond what they're in, what they're entitled to decide and take away issues from the political realm and put them in this untouchable sphere of constitutional protection. Uh, and so as part of his broader judicial philosophy of minimalism and restraint, he does not want the courts to reach out and grab the gun issue and take it away from public debate. He thinks that it belongs properly in the democratic sphere. Mm. Uh, and I think he deserves some credit. You know, there are a lot of issues on which I do not agree with Judge Wilkinson, but this is one area where he gets it just right. He says just because conservatives basically like gun rights doesn't mean that conservative judges should basically cater to their political agenda and give them whatever they want. And it took a lot of bravery and courage for him to do that. Uh, and I think it speaks to the continuing power uh, of our Article Three courts. For the time being, uh, they remain the only branch that seems willing to stand up to Trump and his Republican Party. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I very much admire Wilkinson's uh, eagerness to state his opinions here and do so without apology. Uh, yeah, and and to frame as a conservative matter that, yes, we the people uh, do have a say in these matters. Uh, i got to take a quick break. We'll come back with Mark Joseph Stern for a few more minutes on uh, some more encouraging news. Another place where the, uh, the courts seem to be uh, serving the people for change here, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court in this case, uh, and uh, concerning the death penalty. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Some things in life are bad. They can really make you mad. Other things just make you swear and curse. When you're chewing on life's gristle, that grumble, give a whistle. And this'll help things turn out for the best. Aim. Always look on the bright side of life. <laughs> Welcome back look on to the Bradcast. The Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, we're, we're looking at uh, some uh, some things on the bright side of life here. Some good news, some encouraging news uh, today. 
We're speaking with Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com. A, a big case, I think, or at least an important case, another important case, uh, a decision a ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court today. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of a black death row inmate, Dwayne Buck, whose own attorney called an expert to the stand who told the jury that Buck's race, he's African-American, made him a danger to society. Chief Justice John Roberts in this case penned the uh, 6-2 to two decision holding that Buck received ineffective assistance of counsel in violation of the Sixth Amendment and allowing him to appeal his capital sentence. Justice Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito naturally uh, dissented, <laughs> according to uh, Mark Stern at Slate.com. Mark, this, this theme's uh, quite important, so explain to me what this guy's you, you write that Buck's attorney here called an expert, Dr. Walter Quijano, to testify with the knowledge that Quijano believed Buck's race increased his probability of future violence. And this was an attorney representing Buck. What was he thinking? Uh, good question. No one seems to know what he was thinking. Uh, but what he did was obviously quite egregious. He knew that this expert that he called would say something along the lines of, in my view, black people are more dangerous and pose a risk of future danger, uh, a greater risk than white people. And yet he called him anyway to testify in favor of his own clients. Uh, and then when the jury was asked to determine whether Buck would be dangerous in the future, which is the necessary prerequisite for sentencing him to death, they decided shockingly, that he was, <laughs> almost certainly based on this testimony. Uh, and the weirdest thing about all of this is that it happened in the late 90s. This case has been circulating around both state and federal court for nearly 20 years because of all of the really ridiculous procedural roadblocks that congressional Republicans created in the 90s and that Texas has since created that are designed really to keep death row inmates on death row uh, and prevent them from effectively appealing unjust sentences. This goes back, this case goes back uh, to a, a murder which took place in, uh, actually, the uh, the trial it took place in 1997, and he has still been fighting this uh, decision, Buck has. W was this attorney, uh, was this a public defender? I'm trying to figure out what he could have even been thinking that, you know, even if true, this claim that he was making, you know, was he thinking that somehow this would... Uh, get, get sympathy from the jury or some such? Because, uh, you know, I, I don't even understand it. It seems just gobsmacking. So what was this a public defender? Uh, I, my understanding is that it was, uh, and I do not understand why he actually did this. No one seems to be able to understand why he did this. Um, and yet, no one seemed to notice that it was a problem at the time. Uh, for instance, um, this guy, poor Mr. Buck, he appealed uh, the death penalty uh, sentence, did not raise the ineffective assistance of counsel claim. His lawyer should have told him to. It was a different lawyer at that point. He filed a habeas corpus petition, a very extreme remedy, uh, and his lawyer, once again, did not raise the ineffective assistance of counsel thing. So even though this is an issue that, you know, has lots of different facets, the, the basic point here, I think, is that people who are sentenced to death in this country get the worst lawyers sometimes. They mm. cannot get, they cannot catch a break. 
they wind up with really terrible representation. Uh, and the only time that they get any attention is after they've been convicted and usually after their appeals have run out. And all they have are these habeas proceedings that states and federal courts really disfavor. Um, so even though, you know, the, the main ineffective assistance of counsel claim here, the primary claim involves Dr. Quijano and his racist testimony. But if you look over the record, you see just how many lawyers came and went and failed this poor man yes. in, in effectively assisting him and representing him. It's really quite shocking, I think. Failed because, uh, well, first, that this guy was even used somehow uh, by his own attorney as an expert witness, and then failed again because they did not include that problem when they later appealed the case. Uh, there was also, it seems to be, a failure here by... Uh, then Texas Attorney General John Cornyn, who is now one of uh, Texas's U.S. senators, along with Ted Cruz, uh, he was the uh, AG at the time uh, when this uh, when when Quijano, this expert, was found to be blatantly racist. Uh, there was six different cases in which this guy Quijano had uh, had testified. Five of the uh, cases were tossed out because of this uh, Quijano and his testimony, but not Dwayne Buck. Why wasn't Dwayne Buck's uh, uh, case also uh, dismissed because of Quijano? Uh, Because in the other five cases, Quijano testified on behalf of the state. He was brought in to try to increase the odds that the defendant would get the death sentence. Here, in Buck's case and Buck's case alone, he was brought in on behalf of Buck, again, for no clear reason. It's a deep mystery of this case that will never solve. Uh, And so the state made the argument, the then attorney general made the argument, uh, that it was a completely different situation that he voluntarily brought in Quijano. Uh, and so while all of these other people who suffered from Quijano's testimony got to be resentenced, Buck was left out in the cold. This is uh, d- encouraging news uh, in that it highlights the problem you point out, uh, Mark, with you know the, 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 the representation that people tend to get when they are on, uh, you know, facing the death penalty. Um but uh, so it's encouraging news in that regard, but uh, it's it's not a a complete win here because now how how does this work? Is Buck does does this go back for resentencing? Could he still be uh, sentenced to death by the state of Texas? Yes, it's a very complicated procedural posture, um, but the upshot of it is that he will almost certainly be resentenced, um, and uh, unless the state of Texas decides to settle for life. Uh, in prison, um, which it probably won't because it's Texas. Um, but the, the upshot is that he probably will be resentenced, and so a jury will once again have the opportunity to decide whether he deserves death. Um, I kind of suspect that a jury will probably sentence him to life this time. He's so old. Uh, he's a much more sympathetic defendant, I think, than he mm. was at the time of the murder. Uh, and even though the jury won't be told about all of this history, uh, because it's technically immaterial to the case, I suspect they know how to use Google. Um, and so this man, his life is still on the line here, but I think this was a lot of good news for him, and it makes it much more likely uh, that he won't die at the hands of the state. One last point of good news here uh, that you highlight, Mark. Uh, Justice Roberts uh, wrote this decision. And um, and 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 you give him great credit here that I think he deserves. And I want to read uh, very quickly what you highlighted. Uh, You you describe this as uh, Justice Roberts at his race blind best. 
He writes, Dr. Quijano's testimony appealed to a powerful racial stereotype, that of a black man as violence prone. In combination with the substance of the jury's inquiry, this created something of a perfect storm. Dr. Keanu's opinion coincided precisely with a particularly noxious strain of racial, racial prejudice, which itself co- uh, coincided precisely with the central question at sentencing. The effect of this unusual confluence of factors was to provide support for making a decision on life or death on the basis of race. This is a disturbing departure from a basic premise of criminal ju- of our criminal justice system. Our law punishes people for what they do, not who they are. That from uh, Justice John Roberts. And uh, yes, at his race blind best in this case, I think he gets uh, credit, even though he's the same guy who uh, gutted the Voting Rights Act by claiming essentially that racial prejudice is no longer a a, a big problem in this country when it comes to voting. It's extremely bizarre. The passage you just read sounds like it could have been uh, written by a lauded race theory professor at Oberlin. Uh, And yet he continues to gut affirmative action, gut the Voting Rights Act, approve of racist voter ID laws. Um, so it's a strange dissonance with the Chief Justice. Yep. Uh, when, when he's stared in the face with racism, when he can't deny that there is racism right in front of him, he feels compelled to call it out and to do so in very impassioned terms. Uh, but when he is able to avoid charges of racism, to say this is just states doing state things, we shouldn't get involved, uh, then he somehow closes his eyes. He becomes willfully blind to the racism that's before him. Um, I don't claim to know the answer to how this came to be. It's a, it's a real mystery with the chief. But I think we should just be thankful that yes. at least in this case, he did see the racism and didn't try to deny it. We'll take it. We'll take whatever we can get these days. Uh, Mark Joseph Stern, uh, he covers law and LGBTQ issues for Slate.com, where you can find his work. You can also find him on the Twitters and uh, harass him as you like at MJS underscore DC. Mark Stern, greatly appreciate you joining us today and uh, shedding light on uh, both of these issues. Greatly appreciated. Thanks so much for having me on. You bet. And, you know, that's not the only good court news, actually, today. Uh, Texas authorities who accused Planned Parenthood of selling fetal body parts cannot withhold Medicaid money from uh, from the medical provider, Planned Parenthood, according to a federal judge. Judge Sam Sparks issued an injunction in favor of Planned Parenthood, uh, ruling that its lawyers had shown it would likely prevail in its lawsuit against state officials. Uh, in December, the state of Texas had cut off Medicaid funds to some Planned Parenthood groups, The state's decision to do so by the department's inspector general, Stuart Brown, uh, came, quote, without any evidence indicating an actual program violation warranting termination, according to Judge Sparks' 42-page ruling. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, of course, vowed to appeal. Um, He said today's decision is disappointing and flies in the face of basic human decency. He cited the, he cited that video that was secretly recorded by this group calling themselves Center for Medical Progress, which is really an anti-abortion group. They were disguising themselves, trying to get uh, Planned Parenthood to say stuff and then use it out of context. Um, that was his evidence that Planned Parenthood was selling fetal tissue 
which uh, Planned Parenthood has denied. The two anti-abortion activists who were recording uh, that secret video were later indicted for using fake ID um, by a grand jury in Houston. Those charges were ultimately dismissed against those uh, those two activists. Uh, but the same grand jury also cleared Planned Parenthood of any wrongdoing. Judge Sparks, in this case, similarly said there is no proof in the video that uh, Planned Parenthood violated ethical or medical standards. He also found no evidence that the state showed Planned Parenthood had altered abortions to procure fetal tissue for research. There was nothing here. Now, this comes as uh, some uh, 12,000 of uh, 12,000 Texans on Medicaid get health services from Planned Parenthood. Trump has said he would uh, work to defund Planned Parenthood while he was campaigning. Uh, U.S. House Speaker Paul Ryan announced in January that Republicans plan to strip all federal funding for Planned Parenthood as part of their process to uh, dismantle Obamacare. Although federal law already prevents it from using funds to pay for abortions. So uh, this is just uh, more right wing nuttery, frankly. And uh, and it was turned down by the uh, by the federal courts. Also, uh, today is some some good court news uh, from Alice Olstein uh, over at TPM. She reports that North Carolina Democratic Governor Roy Cooper who narrowly defeated Republican Pat McCrory in November, announced uh, this week that he is reversing course in a major voting rights case that currently pens before the U.S. Supreme Court. The state will no longer defend a series of voting restrictions that were passed in 2013 by the Republican-controlled legislature in North Carolina and it was signed by the Republican governor, Pat McCrory, Uh, An appeals court has found that law unconstitutional, declared it race-based vote suppression. The Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals found that Republican lawmakers had set out to uh, target African-American voters with, quote, almost surgical precision when they wrote this particular law. So they struck it down. Um, But before he lost his reelection bid, Pat McCrory had appealed the ruling to the U.S. Supreme Court to try to overturn that Fourth Circuit uh, decision. And now Cooper is reversing the state's position and seeks to withdraw the petition before the high court uh, to review the case. He also announced that he's dismissing the private attorneys that the state had been paying to defend the law. That cost nearly five million taxpayer dollars to defend this unconstitutional law that had tried to eliminate same-day voter registration, cut a full week of early voting, barred voters from casting ballots outside their home precincts. Um, got rid of... It was the worst, uh, most suppressive voter suppression law in the nation uh, passed since the uh, Jim Crow era, frankly. It also included the nation's strictest photo ID restrictions. But now uh, Cooper is reversing uh, the state's position on that. He wants to withdraw the position, uh, the uh, petition. So five million dollars in taxpayer money they were paying to uh, defend this law. Cooper said we need to make it easier for people to exercise their right to vote, not harder. And I will continue. I will not continue, he, he said in his statement. I will not continue to waste time and money appealing this unconstitutional law. The state's new Democratic attorney general, 
who also uh, beat his Republican opponent by a very narrow margin in November, added that the move will will save even more money than that because attorneys representing the plaintiffs have agreed to waive some $12 million of legal fees that they were due from the more than three-year litigation if the petition is dismissed and the litigation at the Supreme Court ends. Uh, so we'll see. This case, uh, the AG has uh, said we're getting out. The governor has said we're getting out. We'll see if, in fact, it is over, because uh, currently the state board of elections has a Republican majority because after the Democratic governor won the election narrowly last uh, last November, the Republican legislature changed the laws. It used to be that uh, whichever party had the governorship controlled the um, controlled the state elections board. But the uh, the state, the state Republicans changed that law and a whole bunch of others to try to strip power away from the incoming Democratic governor. Now, a lot of that has been that, too, has been overturned by the courts. Uh, so far. And so uh, we'll see if that one holds up where the Republicans continue to control the state, uh, the state election board. They have a stake in this uh, case as well. They could, if they want, find the money to continue uh, defending this indefensible law. We'll see. We don't know. So that's still pending. But uh, by and large, it looks like uh, the challenge to this uh, voter suppression law in North Carolina may finally be over. All right, one more before we go to a break. Uh, the FEC commissioner uh, who had uh, demanded evidence from Donald Trump that, in fact, thousands of votes were cast in New Hampshire by illegally by people being bussed from Massachusetts. She is standing by her statement and she is uh, st- standing strong against a letter from a Koch brothers group that demanded she, the FEC commissioner, be investigated for asking for the uh, for the evidence to support the president's claim that there were thousands of illegal votes cast in New Hampshire. And that's why uh, Donald Trump lost in New Hampshire. Uh, the commissioner, Ellen Weintraub, um, was uh, citing this group uh, funded by the Koch brothers cause for action. They had sent a letter on Tuesday to the inspector general of the FEC requesting an investigation into what it claimed was Weintraub's overstepping her authority as a commissioner. They say she violated applicable ethics regulations when she used government property and official time to call on President Trump to provide evidence of his claim of voter fraud in New Hampshire. The president of the United States has, without providing evidence, uh, says uh, Ellen Weintraub in her statement in response, uh, without providing evidence, alleged a massive conspiracy to bust thousands of voters from one state to another to cast illegal votes in the 2016 election. Any such allegation challenging the legitimacy of federal elections would be of great concern to me. The commissioner of the Federal Elections Commission said, as it happens, this particular allegation falls squarely within the jurisdiction of the Federal Election Commission, she said. Accordingly, I have asked the president for his evidence. She said, let there be no doubt. It is absolutely within my official duties as a federal election official to comment publicly on any aspect of the integrity of federal elections in the United States. Weintraub concluded, I will not be silenced. 
So there's a bit more good news for you. The people are standing strong, including uh, at least one commissioner on the Federal Election Commission, which other than that is a completely broken commission at this point. Quick break and we're back with more broadcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. This is not a drill. It never was. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Right on. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. This may be encouraging news, I guess, depending on uh, where you sit politically. The Quinnipiac University uh, survey has released new numbers on Wednesday, finding that only 38% of Americans approve of Donald Trump's job performance. Just one month into his presidency, he's already uh, just 38 percent approval, 55 percent disapprove of the commander in chief. According to Quinnipiac, the 17 point difference in his uh, approval, disapproval approval rating is is the worst that he's fared in a poll since he took office in January. An earlier survey found him with 42 percent approval and 51 percent disapproval. So there was a a nine point gap that is now a 17 point gap, 17 points underwater. Eighty three percent of Republicans, however, 83 percent still approve of uh, of Donald Trump. Ninety one percent of Democrats disapprove of his performance. So uh, I guess the difference here is uh, among independents, uh, 55 percent disapprove of his performance, just 38 percent approve. The uh, assistant director of the Quinnipiac University poll said President Donald Trump's popularity is sinking like a rock. But that hasn't kept him from uh, taking to Twitter, as he did last night, uh, to respond to these uh, town hall meetings across the country where folks are turning out in droves uh, to ask questions and demand answers from their uh, members of Congress, in, in, including in very Republican areas of the, uh, of the country. Donald Trump uh, tweeted last night that this is all the work of liberal activists. The, uh, the, he, he writes, uh, the so-called so-called angry crowds in home districts of some Republicans are actually, in numerous cases, planned out by liberal activists. Sad, he says. Now, listen, I I recall defending those those Tea Partiers who showed up at town halls. Remember them uh, to yell and scream uh, back in 2009. At, uh, they were yelling in, in 2010, yelling at Democratic officials uh, about Obamacare. Yeah, those folks, yes, they were wildly disinformed by a well-funded uh, commercial interests like Fox News and Koch brothers and a bunch of scammy fake public interest groups who were raising money trying by scaring the hell out of these folks with disinformation 
like Obamacare included death panels. Remember that, Des? Oh, it yeah. was It was going to kill granny. Well, we, I, nonetheless, I defended the Tea Partiers uh, showing up and speaking out, whether they were disinformed or not. We covered some of the actual well-funded rallies, by the way, at the time where they'd whip up th- these... Uh, you know, supporters into a frenzy with fake information and the fact that those were paid for by these corporate interests thinly disguising themselves as grassroots political outfits. Uh, You can go to YouTube and search for uh, my amusing uh, two-part video called Rise of the Teabags back from 2009 uh, to get an idea and and to get a laugh uh, about these uh, folks. But anyway... People are now showing up at these town halls and they're, uh, you know, demanding answers. Here was a woman uh, from that I thought was just great from uh, Kentucky with Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. And the last I heard, these coal jobs are not coming back. And now these people don't have the insurance they need because they're poor. And they work those coal mines and they're sick. The veterans are sick. The veterans are broken down. They're not getting what they need. If you can answer any of that, I'll sit down and shut up like Elizabeth Warren. Uh, now, she was complaining about the fact that they're uh, you know, taking away the Affordable Care Act. Listen, I understand why elected officials like Mitch McConnell may not like being called out by their constituents that they've lied to about Obamacare and about coal jobs that are not coming back. Not because of Obama's non-existent war on coal, but because fracking and natural gas, uh, which those uh, Republicans supported for years, is now cheaper than coal. I understand why Fox News needs to pretend that protesters are being paid by George Soros. And I even understand why Donald Trump watching these town hall protests in the reddest of red states, uh, you know, as he sees them growing larger and larger, that he feels like he needs to do something, anything uh, to try to undercut the legitimacy in his supporters' eyes. But that should also be considered good news because Trump does not generally respond to anything that affects him negatively until it gets so bad that he feels he has no other choice. So, uh, you know, his tweets uh, hoping to undercut the legitimacy of the anger and fear and frustration by so many amongst the majority of Americans who do not support him. Uh, that doesn't make their anger and their protest and the truth and the facts, real ones, not alternative facts, uh, doesn't make any of that any less real. So you may not like it, Mr. President, but it's called democracy. And this is what it looks like. Get used to it. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. And by the way, happy birthday, Desi. Thank you. Also, thanks to my guest, Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com. Uh, We will be on the road for a few days. Angie Coiro will be in for us, but we'll see you next week. Until then, uh, oh, if you'd like to wish Desi a happy birthday yourself, feel free to stop by bradblog.com slash donate. I suspect she would appreciate it. Uh, Until then, you can find us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at TheBradBlog. And you can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. (laughs) 